Hello and welcome to Deep Thoughts, Shallow Plots. My name's Erica and I really like to watch horror movies. My name's Katie and I really like to overanalyze things. What are we overanalyzing today, Erica? Today we are overanalyzing the 1974 proto-slasher Christmas classic, Black Christmas. Um, Katie, do you want to give us just like a quick overview of what this movie's about before we jump right in? Uh, yeah, so this is honestly a pretty straightforward kind of slasher-esque. Mm-hmm. There's a guy in the house killing off sorority sisters. Mm-hmm. The call is coming from inside the house. <laughs> Stuff. People are dying. Yeah, this movie does really play off the urban legend theme that I think we've kind of been discussing in recent episodes. Yeah, eventually I'm going to do a deep dive into telephones, but today is not this day. Today is not that day. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, so we've got this cast of characters, a mostly female cast of characters, very few men. Yeah, Um, and the men who are there. Mm, are awful they're, they're or there, ineffective right. or I think I don't know there's like two okay men <laughs> who who's okay I was gonna oh, say Claire's, Claire's dad who's a little bit Mm-mm. but he doesn't do anything in terms of people being offensive in this movie uh, men being awful he's just a dad you I know guess, he's yeah. judgy yeah but like a dad he let it just let him judge well, that other guy that other guy is that claire's boyfriend yeah and then claire's boyfriend, claire's boyfriend boy, seems pretty say. cool claire's boyfriend yeah. seems fine other than that they did want the ending i think when it came to america or something they wanted to change the ending to be less ambiguous mm-hmm. and have it be claire's boyfriend oh which i don't think would have been good no no um Right, so we've got this cast of characters that, you know, it's taking place in a sorority house, and it's taking place at Christmas, but I, I would argue that it doesn't need to be taking place during Christmas. It's just taking place during a time when the the sorority house is sparsely populated. Right, and where it's not surprising that somebody isn't around because, well, they're home for the holidays. Yeah, they, they went home, they left. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um. So we've got a, a lot of characters here. And th- we also have... Uh, interesting subplot going on in this film. Oh yeah, it's I, I don't even know if it's really a subplot. I think it's, it's like a, a major mid- plot. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> but I would say it's the B plot it's to the, the A plot. plot. Yeah, for sure, the B plot to the A plot, mm-hmm. which is just telling her boyfriend that she is getting an abortion, mm-hmm. and her boy boyfriend Peter being just a real baby about it. Yeah, being a total ass. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So our our kind of main character, and again, this is a proto slasher, nineteen seventy four, same year that that um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out, which you know is largely considered with inspiring the slasher genre that would really take shape in the eighties and the nineties. Um, four years before Halloween as well. Yeah, and this movie was perhaps an inspiration for it, with it being a another Pro- holiday slasher. Probably, yeah. Um, so Jess is kind of, you know, if this is a prototypical slasher, Jess is our prototypical final girl. Yeah. Um, but interesting, though, because I think so much of this film has to do with women's sexuality. Mm-hmm. And for Je- and like this shows up for Jess because like she obviously had sex, she got pregnant, right? right yeah, and um, she is. I mean, uh, Jess is like I think a very calm and collected young woman. She is very like, rational. Shit starts to go down. Her friends start to go missing, and she is like keeping it under control, mm-hmm. right? And she is also like she is telling Peter, her boyfriend, who's pregnancy. We assume he had a hand in, right? Yeah. Um, She's very calm and collected, 
you know, and she's just she 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 talks to Peter like he's an adult and she's an adult. Right. And she makes it clear like she has thought about this. Yes. She's considered her options. This is the option she is going with. Yep. And I am here informing you of this, not asking for opinions. Yeah. Um, And he is he's like calling her selfish. Like, don't you ever consider anybody but yourself? yourself, And then he's like, don't you know how important this afternoon is to me? Talking about a piano recital that he has. It's like, Oh, Peter. This is what you're bringing up right now? Yeah. And then, of course, when that piano recital doesn't go well, this fucking asshole busts up the piano. Right. I'm like, is that is that the school's piano? But we don't... Who cares whose piano it is? Pianos are expensive. Yeah. What um, are you doing? But do we, do we actually get that? Do we find out that the piano recital doesn't go well? Well, we see that he's like kind of nervous and sweaty uh-huh. and the people watching just sort of seem stone-faced and like they aren't really enjoying I, it i mean honestly as someone who studied music before like it's pretty par for the course i don't i think but, we're supposed to think that it didn't go well yeah. in terms of like movie representation of it also yeah. because later when he's like we can just get married we'll yeah. have the baby we'll get married yeah. i'm quitting the conservatory yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm like of course you're saying you're quitting the conservatory because you had a fucking bad day at your recital yeah this isn't actually about jess and Mar- this is about you taking control of something right and that really is i think like the biggest theme of this entire movie is women trying to exercise independence and bodily autonomy mm-hmm. in their especially in their sexuality mm-hmm. and every system around them the system of law enforcement right predominantly male um the the system of the school they're going to and like the students around them are like trying doing whatever they can explicitly or implicitly to keep these women from be from being able to do that. Yeah. And I think Peter is just a really, really great example of that, of like, in general, the men wanting to control the lives of the women around them. Right. Like, yeah. like, and again, just like she, she does it so well. She like, she says like, do you remember when we met, you know, and she's like, you told me about your dreams and what you wanted to do. And I told you about my dreams and what I wanted to do. And it's just like, uh-huh. Yeah. What yeah. else, Jess? Yeah. Yeah. No. It's- yeah. And she's like, I still want to do those things. Just because yeah. your plans have changed doesn't mean my plans yeah. have changed. Yeah. Right? She's like, OK, so bye, bitch. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, like, and my Peter, plans are still my plans. And Peter says, like, yeah, oh, gosh, I wish I'd written down some of the things he says. Yeah, he calls her selfish. He says, yeah, you're not thinking about anybody else besides yourself. And I was like, well, first of all, she's a college student. So, like, if ever there's a time to be selfish and only think about yourself. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, there's also, yeah. especially the things he says when he then comes to talk to her some more about it at there. I think it's at the sorority house mm-hmm. and they're in front of the Christmas tree. Oh yeah. And he starts calling her a bitch. Yes. And he starts breaking the ornaments yes. and like getting really big, you know, yeah. that way that men do where they use their size yeah. just to be like intimidating, yeah. you know? And like, that's when he says that she's murdering our baby. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He, yeah. Ugh, Has whatever. that line about like it's easy as getting a wart removed or whatever uh, yeah. that then the caller repeats to her. Oh yeah. Cause there's also that caller. Right. And this is the, I think, thing about this film is that it it does end in a very ambiguous fashion and we also never find out who the psycho killer is no we know that it's not peter mm-hmm. and his eyes are the wrong color his eyes, whatever um we know it's not peter although i think the cops do try to 
pin it on Peter, right? Well, they assume it's Peter, yeah, without yeah. actually talking to Jess about it. <laughs> or doing any kind of investigation. They don't search the entire house. No, they don't even. Even once they find out the call's coming from inside the house. Oh, and they God. still have bodies missing, so they aren't like, well, maybe some of the bodies are still in this house. We should look. No, we're going to leave this traumatized woman alone. Who just killed her or shitty boyfriend. Yeah, who yeah. maybe was a murderer, maybe not. Yeah. Either way, she's fucking traumatized. And the doctor's like, I know what's good for her. We're just going to sedate her and leave her leave alone her yeah. with like one cop outside. Basically. Yeah. Um, the way that Jess is just let down by so many men. Just over and over and over. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting because this film is from 1974. And um, of course, as we know, this movie is actually a Canadian film. Yes. It takes place in Canada. It technically does take place in Canada. It was yeah. filmed in Canada. Um, so it's just really interesting. Like, I think the timeliness of this film is pressing. Because uh, the year before, in 1973, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court rules to protect the right to abortion access in Roe versus Wade. Um, but, of course, that was in the United States. Um, although it does seem like Canada is on a pretty similar trajectory. Um, I guess by 1968, the Canadian federal government passes the Criminal Law Amendment Act that helps legalize abortion and contraception. Um, but it's my understanding that that was just in the case of, quote unquote, therapeutic abortions, which kind of seemed from the research I did really just seemed to cover like abortions in the event of like fetal inviability. Is that the word? Yeah. If the fetus isn't viable um, or if like the health and safety of the mother is in in jeopardy because of the pregnancy. Um, So it's just a really interesting little time and place that Jess is deciding to get an abortion. Yeah. Um, Oh, and I think as you pointed out, though, even if it's not quite legal in Canada yet. Yeah. All of these sorority girls seem to be of a class yeah. Where it wouldn't be so hard to go into, you know, pop over to New York or yeah. wherever to get an abortion. I think you're right about that. Yeah. And it also would have been really, it would have been much easier to access abortion in New York because New York State legalized abortion a couple years before mm. the Roe v. Wade decision. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, probably. Yeah. And I think even in cases where it was a therapeutic abortion situation, mm-hmm. there have been certain doctors who have allowed cases of it being like a psychological health mm-hmm. risk. And I think Jess would be a candidate for that. Right. Well, especially now that the dude who got her pregnant, she murdered him. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's not a therapeutic reason, then I don't know what is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, because, I mean, especially in 1974, like, you probably, you wouldn't, you know, want your, you wouldn't want a kid growing up without an intact home. Oh, God, no. Of course not. No, no, no. <laughs> Um, so Jess is kind of our final girl, and we do sort of like follow her throughout the entirety. And she has of some great sweaters. She looks great in yellow. She does, yeah. When Peter says "I love you," she responds with "I know." Like oh, everything wow. about her is excellent. <laughs> wow, this is before Star Wars, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. Wow, well done, Jess. And it was a very different tone to that. I know. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah. So Jess is killing it, and she's also just going through a really highly stressful situation. Like we said, yeah. her friends are starting to disappear. Um law enforcement is less than helpful she's in college she's just in college yeah it's uh it's a stressful time for her and she's like she's keeping it together i don't think she like ever raises her voice Mm -mm. i don't think no um and i think the only time when she really keeps her composure 
I, f- I find her and her friendship with Phil, mm-hmm. Phyllis, yeah, Phyllis. really nice. They seem to be the people, like, so many men mm-hmm. in this film just, like, let women down in yeah. so many different ways. Yeah. But the women are able to really rely on each other. Like, when she hears the caller say those same things that Peter said. Yeah. She doesn't tell the cops about it, but she does talk to Phil about it yeah. and, like, gets support there. And then Phil talks about how, like, she's really worried about Claire missing and, yeah. like, gets help from just about that. And they're, like, really supportive of each other. I f- yeah, especially Phyllis. I-, I feel like Phyllis is not really much of her own character. Like, we don't, I don't really, we don't really get to know Phyllis that well. She's just kind of a support. She is definitely a support. She has yeah. some lines. I liked her. I felt like her and, I felt like I understood her relationship to Jess. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I really like about her is that she never liked, um, Peter. And I'm like, yeah. Yeah. He's, you're right not yeah. to. Is, is Phyllis the one that gives you the lesbian vibe too? Yeah. Was she the one like kind of cuddling up with that other, in the, the, that beginning scene in the, like yeah. when they're at the party, Phyllis and who else? I think it's it? Jess. And Jess. I think so. Shit, I think I'm they're kind of, watch it I again. don't know. I, it took me, I only watched it the one time mm-hmm. and it took me a while to figure out which girl was which. Who's who? Absolutely. Yep. I thought Claire sure. was Jess for a hot minute. Yeah. 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 Definitely took me a while to separate Claire from Jess. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure at the beginning, Claire is making out with her boyfriend. Okay. So. Yeah. So I think it was Phil and Jess who were. Yeah. And then the other thing Jess does. Yeah. Is that when she's told that the caller call is coming from inside the house, but she knows that Barb and Phil are still in the house somewhere. Yeah. And like, it's a good chance they're already dead. And they she, are. They are. And they do turn dead. out to be yeah. dead. But she still goes in like after she doesn't like. Because she does. To actually, safety. she does raise her voice. She does yell at them. Like, yeah. answer me, please. If you're yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah, she's because she's like, yeah, all of the cops have let us the fuck down. <laughs> I'm going to save my friends. And yeah. I wish she could have. I also wish she could have. Yeah. This is true. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of shows that she's um, not selfish, actually. Peter. No, actually. Yeah, honestly, I think, yeah, that d- the decision she's making to terminate that pregnancy is, is honestly a super smart one. Yeah. And, and it's not coming from like a selfish place mm-mm. or like, and even if it was, that's fine. But like, yeah, it's just so infuriating to have Peter say that when he is just clearly such a selfish person. Oh, yeah. And Jess is so clearly not. <laughs> um, so that we also have, I feel like, to me, the most interesting character to me is is Barb. She is, yeah. Played by Margot Kidder. Yeah. If I, if I'm it not took mistaken. me a while in the beginning to sort of, I was like, I know one of these girls is going to be our sort of final girl. Uh-huh. Because I'm primed for that. Of course. And yes. I was like, I don't know, Barb is interesting and we're spending a lot of time with her what's barb's deal i also feel in a different kind of movie again if this if this was made in like 1984 um that barb would probably be one of the first to die oh yeah she technically dies third yeah of actually i'm not quite sure what the body count in this movie is well and it also it depends on if we count the little girl janice Oh, Is that's that right. Name? The little girl. They yeah. find her. And I'm unclear on if that was also our same killer. I thought it was supposed to be. I, but they never established they it. They never established it, no. Um, but Barb in general is just like, she's a bit of a mess. <laughs> she really is. And I, I feel like in a different kind of movie, she would she would be one of the ones to die first. But instead, there's something yeah. about this movie that really treats these women, like takes them seriously mm-hmm, and treats yeah. them as full people rather than as like archetypes as a lot of horror films do, where right. it's like... It sort of acknowledges that, like, 
Like right from the beginning, we have this dynamic where they all are kind of listening to this creepy call, the guy like moaning on the phone, mm-hmm. you know, and they think it's just sort of like some pervert calling before all the murders start. Mm-hmm. And they're all listening. And it seems like mostly it's because Barb is kind of like the cool girl who's like above it and thinks it's kind of funny. And, and they're she's all kind keeping of like, him on the phone instead of just hanging, hanging the up. Fuck up. Uh. But, you know, you get that dynamic where you all kind of want to like live up to the cool girl yeah, in yeah, the group. Yeah. And she wants to like cuss at him yeah you pig you know and she because yeah because her whole thing is like acting tough Mm -hmm. she's so my favorite type of character where it's like you know the bitch with the heart of gold Mm -hmm. where she just really acts tough but has like so much sadness under her and her crystal figurine collection yes which is such yeah and her asthma (laughs) asthma, (laughs) yes well maybe if she wasn't constantly smoking Uh, i don't think there's a scene where she doesn't have a cigarette in her oh yeah Uh, Only stop smoking to take a drink. To take a drink. Yeah, she's drinking and smoking pretty consistently throughout this film. Um, And I don't know if if part of that is like the fact that it is like a holiday break, you know, like they're, they're at the, their, their holiday party at yeah. their sorority house. Yeah, they're all drinking a they're little They're all bit. drinking, yeah. So there's oh, that. But then she does end up later... She's drunk and no one else is. Yeah. When they're they're kind of went out looking for Jess and or not Jess, excuse me, go out looking for Claire um unsuccessfully. Yeah, right. I think there are a few things weighing on her. It does seem like she has this like right from the beginning, this like contentious relationship with her mom. Very much so. Where she thought her and her mom were gonna do something and like plans got changed on her. Yeah. And she's like feeling upset about that. And then she also has this really revealing line. Mm-hmm. Later, where she talks, where she is drunk and sad and like kind of trying to hide it, mm-hmm. where she talks about how she feels guilty because she, during like when she's told to hang up the phone, mm-hmm. Claire's the one who's mostly upset about it. Yeah. And she, Barb calls Claire a professional virgin and like kind of drives her away. She's yes. like, whatever, I'm gone. I'm going to go pack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Barb feels like responsible for Claire being missing. Because that was kind of the last time anyone saw Claire. Yeah. yeah. So Barb's like, I'm the one who drove her away. Yeah. It's my fault if she shows up dead. Mm. And it's just like, yeah, maybe you would drink a bunch. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely see the tumultuous relationship with her mom. Because like in, in, in such a clear, concise way too. Um, just like with the phone call, mm-hmm. you know, what did she say? Did she call her mommy. I don't remember. Something like that. I don't know. Uh, and she says, um, so yeah, something about, yeah, I've had a couple, like yeah, mentioning how much she's drinking or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we can tell that there's that tumultuous relationship with her mom for sure. Um, and it just in general, I think, yeah, maybe as part of like her kind of cool girl, vibe is that she also says or maybe also the influence of the alcohol it's hard to say that she says a lot of like really inflammatory things like calling claire a professional virgin right and it's just like first of all why does it matter you know and it's so it's so interesting because like you know this is happening in the mid 70s we're like kind of smack dab in the middle of second wave feminism Mm -hmm. and so it was just like so you know a a big part of the push in second wave feminism was like sexual liberation and so it's like barb you're not being a very good feminist right now you know like well if claire's not being sexually liberated I guess, but like if Claire is would doesn't want to have sex, if she just wants to make out with her boyfriend, then like that's her choice. 
The whole right. point is choice, right? No, the whole point was being sexually liberated, <laughs> liberated which yes. is different. Right. And so it's interesting that there is that she's kind of does have the sexual liberation thing because she also has probably the most inflammatory line of the entire film. Oh, yeah. When Claire, she's talking with, with Claire, they're, she, they're talking with everybody. Everybody's around the house because this is right after they got a call from the Mona. <laughs> yes. <laughs> is that how <laughs> so Jules... Yeah. Not Jules. Who's Jules? Jules is no one. Claire. Jess. Jess. Jess is the one who answers the phone first. Uh-huh. And she's the one who has the weirdest accent. She has an interesting accent because that actress is British and Argentine. Yeah. So that's definitely an interesting combination yeah. there. That's, yeah, she, it's almost kind of like a East Coast accent. Yeah. The Mona. It's the Mona. Anyway, um, which gets everybody's attention. And I think it, it's Claire or Jess who's like, yeah, but I'm freaked out about this because, like, didn't you hear... That, you know, there was like a one of the townies was like raped in the park or something. And Barb just like so matter of fact, straight face is just like you can't rape a townie. Right. (laughs) So even though we're kind of in the middle of this like second wave feminism, sexual liberation, like the women, not just Barb, a lot, all of the women Mm -hmm. in this movie still have like quite a bit to learn and understand yeah. about sexual liberation. Well, they're also all college kids. <laughs> they're college kids in the 70s. So yeah, like we've mentioned, like odds are that they probably have access to money. They probably have yeah. money. They're probably upper class. I mean, I know that college was way less expensive in the 70s, but you know, also, I don't know actually about the situation in Canada. I don't know about the situation in Canada either. It seemed honestly all pretty similar. And yeah, I think especially in order to like educate to send your daughter to college, like you probably have to have a little bit of extra money. You know, mm-hmm. there might be like some uh, some savings accounts to send your boy to college, but your daughter, I don't know. I don't know if a, a lot of families in the seventies were really thinking about that. Yeah. You know? Um, but I actually had a question about Barb. I was wondering if you could help me answer because mm-hmm. she's the one who, when they go to the cops to yes. say that Claire's missing, she gives them that joke number. Mm-hmm. Remember. And I don't, she does that, well, because it's funny, right? Yeah, because ACAB. Because something, well, and this is honestly has something to do with the history of telephones I don't fully understand, which is like. Especially since it's a Canadian phone. It's a Canadian phone, yeah. <laughs> Who knows uh, what they do? She said, when he, when the cop asked for the number or like the line, she says fellatio. And that somehow works. And him. that somehow works. Yeah, I don't fully understand. Yeah, he's like, it's a, she's like, yeah, it's a new area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. FEL or something yeah. like that. And, I but, don't know what so, that means. Uh, what I don't understand is like why she gives that cop the joke number. It, it Doesn't she want the cop to call them back? Because at that point, they've gone in because Claire's missing. Claire's missing. Yeah. So Jess, Barb, and Claire's boyfriend Mm -hmm. go to the cops, right? Is that when Claire's dad is there, too? I don't remember if Claire's dad is They go to the cops first with the dad, and then later they come back again with the boyfriend. Right. And I don't think Barb's there the second time. I think she's there the first time. She's there the first time, yeah, to give that wrong number. Yeah. But I I just don't don't understand why she does that. She's drunk, and she doesn't... I think part of it is maybe that she... Either, like, the cops doesn't think it's a big deal and Claire will turn up, mm-hmm. or knows that the cops don't think it's a big deal and won't actually do and anything And won't do anything it. anyway. I don't know. She just seems sort of, like, over it all. Yeah. In a way that might just be, like, drunkenness. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. It is an interesting thing that she does there. Yeah. It's, yeah, I was like, why Why do you do that? I mean, yeah, it's funny. Mm-hmm. And it, it's also really funny that that cop doesn't know what fellatio is. And it's like, come on, man. <laughs> 
talk about not sexually liberated. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting choice. And she dies third, right? Yeah. Um, she maybe depending I, on who else is victim. Right. I, I. I. Okay. So yeah. Let me. Let me. Let of me, the house, she dies in third. the house of the the confirmed kills. The confirmed kills. Yes. Um. Of the psycho killer in the sorority house, she's third, right? Yeah, and she gets stabbed to death with her. Is it crystal? Is it glass? What's the? Yeah, it's like a glass unicorn. A glass unicorn figurine it made me feel very the glass menagerie. Uh huh. You know, know Tennessee Williams. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, but I don't. Oh uh, yeah, okay, it's just a play. Um, <laughs> it was just a little figurines that one would collect because yeah. they were pretty or whatever and yeah. fragile and beautiful, which is nice and kind of like. And I don't think too expensive, you know. No, probably not. So you can have a bunch of them. Yeah, and definitely like makes Barb a lot more like three dimensional as a character. right. Yeah, because right. there's that interesting also dichotomy that we get in several ways between Barb and Claire. Yeah, I think you referred to them as like two sides of the same coin. Definitely. Yeah, and we see that in their rooms versus their like outward personas. Right. Where like Barb is this kind of brash. That's true. Loud mouth, yeah. you know, this kind of sexually liberated or just maybe crude yeah. person. But her room is like really clean and yeah. even just has these like kind of childish toys yeah. and things, you know. And then we see Claire's room, yeah. the quote unquote professional virgin. Yeah. And she has some interesting decor. Yeah. She's got like free love posters yeah. on the wall and picture of her boyfriend of course framed obviously. Yes, yes by her bed but yeah there's like yeah all these like kind of naked pictures mm-hmm. that like miss mac tries to hide from claire's dad right 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 i was like you're in her room dude like what yeah. do you want yeah it just so, sort of looks like a college dorm like yeah i don't know but from yeah. the 70s yeah yeah it, but it does make them all feel it yeah it's a good way of like rounding these characters out so they mm-hmm. aren't just like the way that you see in a lot of horror films mm-hmm. where they're just sort of there to be killed. So it doesn't really matter who they are as people. Like, they really spend time with these people, like, establishing that they're more than just one thing. Right. Yeah. And so Claire does die first. And so, but here's my question. Is she a virgin? I don't. We don't know. We don't know. We do know from the way that all the other girls are talking, and I don't think they have re- reason to, like, be wrong about this, mm-hmm. that Claire, at the very least, like only has her boyfriend and isn't, like, out on the town with a bunch of different men. Uh, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? So, like, if she isn't a virgin, it's in this, like, very, I don't know, monogamous, safe way, you know, okay. where they seem to have, like, this yeah. really love... Like, her boyfriend seems to genuinely really care about yeah, her and love her. Yeah. Like, they seem to have, like, a good relationship. But, and it's interesting, because, like, because, you know, Barb does call her a professional virgin, right? And she dies first, which is, again, yeah. if this was made in 84 instead of 74... Claire probably would have been like a little closer to the final girl. Yeah. You know, having the virgin or at least someone who we are referring to as the virgin right. die first is pretty interesting. Um, yeah. And then her her dad is comes to pick her up. Right. Because, you know, it's the holiday season and she's going home, supposed to be going home for the holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, and I her dad just seems to have like a lot of control over her life. Or at least likes to pretend that he does, maybe. Because he mentioned he mentions paying for her tuition, right? Oh, well. He's like, Well, am I like I'm not paying for my daughter to come here to hook up with men and whatever, yeah. you know. Whatever he says. Drink or maybe drinking or, you know, yeah. like normal college things, right? Um and so I wonder if that like makes him feel like he has the right to control her life because he's paying her tuition. I mean, yeah, I think that certain parents do feel that way yeah i mean like while she she does seem to be like trying to gain her independence and she's 
leaving home to go to college, you yeah. know? Um, and, uh, but it, it is kind of unfortunate because we do get to see Claire's room, but like we don't actually get much of Claire. No, she dies really as a quickly. person. She dies pretty early. So like, it's unfortunate, but I think also really apt for this movie that we get to know Claire best through her father. Yeah. I mean, but I think we also do get to know her through her friends and mm-hmm. through her boyfriend. Like, okay. I think something that's really cool about this movie that you don't see, again, you don't see in a lot of slashers, mm-hmm. is that they really take care with the victims. And they really point out, like, people are looking for Claire. That's they true. care about her. Yeah. Like, she is missing. And, like, the whole town is looking for her, really. Yeah. And Janice. But even after they find little Janice's they body, they still Janice, are yeah. marching around the town looking and... Trying to find the killer and stuff. Yeah. They look for Claire up until the end. Until... And fucking fail. Until everybody else is dead and Jess is basically incapacitated. Yeah. And then they and just... And the cops are like, okay, we're done here. Yep. It's Christmas. Or is it supposed to be Christmas on that day? Or I don't, I don't know. No. And actually, did you catch, speaking of when the people, the townies, uh-huh. are going around, like, helping to try to find the, you know, whoever did this, or trying yeah. to find sites of Claire, whatever, yeah. and they, like, knock on the sorority house door, mm-hmm. and it's, like, just Jess and Phyllis, and when they see them through the window, Phyllis says, I'd rather face the killer. Oh, <laughs> and I'm than just, like, townies. And, like, townies? Phyllis. Who are, like, going around trying to, like... Help you? Help you? Yes. Like, what is that? Oh, Phyllis. To say nothing of the fact that, like, when we first see Janice's mom trying to get the cops' attention about little Janice missing, yeah. and of course the cops are like, well, you know, she's 13, she probably just wandered off, don't worry about it, she'll be back. And her mom's like, she doesn't do that. Yeah. That's not, and then, like, these college kids barge in with their own thing. I yeah. think that's when Claire's boyfriend comes in and is like, what are we doing about Claire? Yeah. And, like, little Janice gets forgotten. And, like, why the hell is their search party the same search party? These are two different missing people. Right. And it's, it's like, like, weird. And they're looking in the park where Janice went missing. Yeah. And it's just, like, Claire wasn't in the park, though. What are we right. doing? What, what are, are we doing? doing? It's so, I mean, the cops suck. But also, just, like, the dynamics <laughs> between the townies and the college kids it's is, like, true. so weird. And, again, it is, like, this weird class thing. Because, again, I, I've I've said it before, and I'm going to keep saying it throughout, like, the, the entirety of, of our episode here, is that especially, I think, with, with Barb and Jess... And of course, like that reference or that that line that Phyllis has about I'd rather face the killer than Downey. Um, I think feel like the characters in this, especially the the sorority girls in in this movie are just such like perfect textbook second wave feminists. Right. Mm. They're care. They care about liberation and freedom from like male enforced structures. Mm. But they're like really blind to really op- to now us and our. third wave feminism whatever the fuck whatever's happening right now um are really blind to what is like to us in the 21st century really obvious and like what about women of color what about queer women what about Mm -hmm. lower class women or these townies right? right and so like it's interesting so like these characters like barb you know uh and phil like with these comments like they're kind of like continuing to enforce patriarchy when they say things like this but like i don't think they really realize it or have the skills or experiences to like know what they're doing and like how to change it i think they they, haven't established intersectionalism they just need to age another 20 years yeah you know um so yeah it's just like this is woo like second wave feminism for like in every Mm -hmm. for the good the bad and the ugly yeah this is second wave feminism yeah uh no bra burning though 
Oh, it's my understanding that never actually happened. No. Uh, so yeah, like this this interesting like disconnect between like oh we're concerned for Claire's safety, like w- this woman who's one of us, you mm-hmm. know, like a probably pretty well off class wise. Yeah. I mean, her dad certainly didn't look like a laborer. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, yeah, a person who can afford, a woman who can afford to go to college in the 70s, yeah. right? It's just like, oh, well, we're worried about her. And then when, like, there are other things to be worried about that, like, they should also care about, they're like, yeah, but that doesn't actually. Yeah. Don't I don't worry. care about that. Yeah. I yeah. don't care about a Missy Towney girl. And it's right. like, why don't you care about a Missy yeah. Towney girl, though? Um. Just a really interesting disconnect. Yeah. The, Especially since literally yeah. those two things could be related. Yes. Like literally in this instance, yes. those could have been the same person yes. <laughs> killing this little Janice girl. They and- are interconnected. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and then we also, there's another character we haven't really talked about yet, which is Mrs. Mack. I wasn't really sure as a viewer of this film. Yes. If we were supposed to like... The whole dynamic between her and Claire's dad. Yeah. I was like, whose side are we supposed to be on? Like, are we supposed to think she's really irresponsible and like leading these girls to immorality? I'll tell you, I'm on neither of their sides. Right. (laughs) But like, I couldn't get what dynamic the film wanted from us. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I know. Uh, Right. I mean, yeah, I know personally, I think all of Claire's dad's worries are like stupid. Yeah. Because like everything he's worried about are not actually the actual issues right now, which is, you know. Yeah, so Mrs. Mack is really, she's like the house mother, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, the girls seem to really like. They do seem to like her, and she seems sort of ambivalent about them. She does seem to care about finding her cat more than a lot of other things. Is that her cat or Claire's cat? I th- I, th- I just thought it was the sorority oh, okay. cat. It's the house cat. It's the house cat, yeah. Yeah. Um, she's very concerned with the cat, and then like continues to call the cat like a bastard or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Which I love. Um, Oh, yeah. So, like, I feel like one of the main things we're supposed to know about Mrs. Mack is that she loves Sherry. Yeah. And she's got bottles hidden all over the house. Like, for some reason. And I'm like, just, this is your private room. Like, just have your bottle. Yeah, right. (laughs) Like, you don't need it hidden in a fake book. (laughs) And she's got, like, the, and she's got these pretty manageable little, like, pints or something. Like, they're not, they're not huge bottles. They're not, like, half gallons or or fifths you know it's like you just keep that in your purse mrs mack yeah. like, you know, like, why are you being so weird about this yeah why are you being so weird about this it's it's almost like it's almost like the one somebody who helped make this movie just like did some research on like like typical alcoholic behavior and yeah. like hiding bottles was one of them yeah. like mrs mack does that <laughs> but it's like i don't think in this house she would have had to do that no definitely not like, who was looking up on Mrs. Mack and her drinking? Exactly. You know, like, sure, maybe people are going to check in on Barb and her drinking sure. and have things to say. Like, her mom is asking about it. Yeah. And, like, her friends are like, let's put Barb to bed. She's had too much. She's, you know? she's drunk, yeah. Like, that makes sense. But I don't think anybody's like, Mrs. Mack. Oh, boy. Yeah. Like, nah, she's a, a woman who's just sort of independent, living her own life. <laughs> it's, have yeah. your bottles. <laughs> yeah, who cares? Um, yeah, she's the, like, she's the house mother. There's- I mean, is there a chance that to keep their sorority house there are some sort of inspections that happen maybe that she is worried about like because that's yeah. all i can think of but then she's also keeping a bottle in like the top of the toilet in like yes. the tank and it's like that's just unhygienic mrs mac come on um yeah because in general i wonder if she's just like 
I want to give Mrs. Mack the benefit of the doubt and say that it's just it's been a long term for her so far and she just really needs she needs, needs this break. break. Yeah. Because um, yeah, she's she, ready to go. She, she had her taxi. She does seem just to have a general disregard for these girls that like it is her job to look over. But I don't know. Is her time up? When when is she done? When is her break start? Exactly. Is this no longer her job? Yeah, right. She's, yeah. When she like break starts, I might be here, but I'm not here. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she like, I think Mrs. Mack is a little bit more because she's older, right? Yeah. She strikes me more as like a first wave feminist, mm-hmm. right? You know, because like she does kind of slut shame yeah. these, these girls for like trying to, again, be trying to be sexually liberated, right? Yeah. And what does she say about like these girls would hump the Eiffel Tower oh, if right. they could get up there? Yeah. Something like that. I was like, and why does that matter to you, Mrs. Mm-hmm. Mack? Just let it, you know. Though she also does like try to protect their image in a certain way like trying to keep claire's dad from mm-hmm. seeing all of claire's stuff uh-huh, and yeah. things you know like right because claire's dad seems to like put that on mrs mac mm-hmm. like aren't you supposed to be looking that's after true. my kid that's true it does become like self-preservation for her yeah and she's just like yeah she kind of gets defensive about it right mm-hmm. yeah and so mrs mac dies second yeah. And this actually gets me because she gets she goes up to the attic to look for the cat, that right? Poor cat. Oh, and the cat lives. Yeah, no, the cat the makes fine. it. Yeah, good stuff. For now, because some of the things that that the dude on the phone talks about is like animals. Oh yeah. Yeah, there are a few times when animals come up and I'm just like, uh-oh, not the cat though. Once he runs out of human victims, I'm concerned about this cat. <laughs> yeah, that's when the cat's going to get the fuck out of dodge though. The, I, the cat's going to know and yeah. Yeah. Um so she dies second and she cuz she goes up to the attic just to find the cat. Just cuz she thinks Cause the she cat's hears, up there, yeah. which is valid. And then she sees Claire. Mhm. Kind of not kind of like very ominous in the rocking chair, like right at the window of the attic. Like uh, if anyone just looked in the window, but I mean it's up above. How would you? And get it's up dark, there? like yeah. okay, whatever. But still, like holy crap! It's, it's like, like there's it's literally, literally right an there. attic up there, and no one so, looks like, at it. No cops. one looks in it. Cops. Mm-mm. But so she she goes up to the attic to try and find the cat. She sees Claire. She freaks out. But then the psycho killer's there and gets her. And like dr- like she's kind of half out of the attic and she gets dragged up mm-hmm. into the attic. And one of her shoes falls off. Yeah. And so I don't know if this we're supposed to believe that the psycho killer like takes care of that shoe or if one of Mrs. Mac's shoes are just is strewn about the and house. And nobody fucking notices it no one or knows, does anything about it. No one knows where she went. Or Well, again, they're like, hey, she's like, hey, if I'm not back, if I'm not here when you're back. Yeah, I, I'm gone. I went to my sister's for Christmas, right? Yeah, yeah. My cab's going to be here any second. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it's interesting that but then again, like. But then there's just a shoe, right? Yeah. Like, would they recognize That's, it as Mrs. Mac's shoe? Like, well, I'm sure they would recognize it as not any of theirs. Their shoes. And just like a shoe, one shoe, two, a pair of shoes? Sure, okay. Sure, maybe she just, yeah, left them. But, but one shoe? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about that. But whatever. That seems We're like. We're going to investigate that further. Again, seems like something that the cops really should have been looking into. Um, but let's talk about that in a second. I do think it's interesting how. How she gets killed? Mrs. I'm not exactly Mac? sure what that is in there. Yeah, some it's sort like, of like pulley system. Yeah, some weird like 1970s technology that we don't need anymore or something. I don't <laughs> has know. Has a hook on it and like yeah. a pulley and he just sort of like swings a hook in her face yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's pretty and, like, cool. Yeah. But I just find him interesting another way where he's like really different than a lot of like what we think of now as psycho killers. Right. Is he's very like opportunistic. 
Mm-hmm. Like, he just kind of suffocates Claire with a bag that's there. Yep. And, like, yeah, he gets Mrs. Mack with that. Mm-hmm. He kills Barb with her own glass unicorn. Right. We don't see how he kills Phyllis, but... That's true, but he kills Phyllis, yeah. Like, it's all very, um... Yeah, just sort of what he has at hand. Right. Which shows how, like... I think shows the impulsivity of the psycho killer. Yeah. And I do really think, I, I, in my notes, I wrote, this psycho killer really puts the psycho in psycho killer. <laughs> right. In a way that makes me a little uncomfortable. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Like, we're definitely dealing with some sort of like, like literally the movie psycho, like split personality type yeah. talking in other voices thing. Yeah. That I'm like not really sure what the movie is going for. Yeah. And like the movie has zero interest in explaining what exactly his deal is, which I like and don't like in different measures. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting because he's like, because as part of the phone call. And so this is the thing about the phone calls, right? Is that it's established that they deal with these obscene phone calls. They've dealt with them previous to this instance. Yes. That's why Jess says it's the Mona. Yeah. So... Was it always that psycho killer? I wonder about that, too. I just think that obscene... questions other than that first yeah. call, he doesn't do a lot of, like, that same sexual obscene talk and the moaning. Yeah. He, only the first call is like that. Right. I also think that this is just something that is just part of these women's daily I think that's lived just part experience. of living in a sorority house, is that you're going to get obscene various different... And they're all the Mona. Yeah. Because they're all moaning. But yeah, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I actually do really like that we never actually see or know who the killer is. Yeah, the only thing I don't I like, like it. about it is that it makes the villain, it, like there's a way it can be read where the villain is just sort of like mental health problems. Sure. You know? Or the patriarchy. Well, well, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. On the other hand, why I do like it. Yes. It's that it's nice that yeah. we can sort of like, I don't know. We'll probably talk about that more when we talk about misogyny in yeah. general, where he is just sort of like a figure, a shadowy figure of misogyny, yeah. you know? And he's also like, it makes it an opportunity that we don't get a lot in horror films where the focus is so much on like who the slasher is sure. and what his deal is and like following his point of view and stuff mm-hmm. where it's like, no, this story is like it's focused on the women and right. like what their lives are. And we like see their lives outside of this house and yeah. like everything they're doing. And it's like there's no there's no way to create like this cult around this killer. Like there's no way to have Halloween yeah. costumes of of the, the, Mona. the dude from Black yeah, Christmas. Like, yeah. And like I think that's cool because like fuck this guy. Yeah. He's a fucking murderer yeah. and a piece of shit. So yeah. like yeah we shouldn't have that. But it's yeah it's interesting. Yeah I think I, you're totally right that like the focus is not on the psycho killer. But like I think literally the opening scene is from his perspective it as is. he creeps into the house right. Yeah. And so like we as the audience see these sorority girls in peril like literally from scene one right mm-hmm. and and then again we've established that the obscene phone calls are just something that these women Maybe, experience yeah. right um and so we do while we don't know who the psycho killer is or what they look like we do spend a lot of time in the perspective of the psycho killer mm-hmm. um so that kind of i think also makes us like as this happens so much with like horror movies and horror audiences is like we are the voyeurs right yeah right like we are complicit in this psycho killer psycho killing right right yeah um so i actually i i completely understand what you're saying about like how a little bit frustrating it is that we don't know who the killer is who they are you know what their motivation is really um but I, I think also there's a lot of the, uh, to me it like it doesn't really matter well no yeah. I'm not frustrated by it because we don't know I actually love that about it yeah because yeah, yeah. I don't fucking care about him I don't the care. only thing yeah. that bothers me is because 
the things that we do know about him is that he's clearly mentally unstable. Right, right, right. And, and like the villainization of there is, mental illness. Yeah, there is like that one call in kind of in the middle of the calls where he does say like, please stop me. Yeah. The right? original title for the movie uh, yes. yeah, was stop is me. Is it stop me or please stop me? I think it, it was yeah. just stop me. Just stop me. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I just like, I, we're, we're getting into it. We're almost there. And like, I just can't wait for you to just go off on like ex- explicitly how incompetent law enforcement is. Yeah. Yeah. Right? No, we're getting there. We're because getting Oh, I'm warming up. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like, uh, yeah, it's like, okay, so you obviously don't give a fuck about these young women. Yeah. Right. But like the, oh, and then they're having a hell of a time tracing the call, whatever, right. whatever. But it's like, and even like, d- does anyone like Jess who gets the call when the psycho killer is like, please help me, please stop me. I can't stop myself. Right. Yeah. Like, does she relay that to law enforcement? Well, I mean, because they're listening in. They for hear that it. call, did they hear that for that uh, call? I don't remember because they because he calls There's like so many five calls. times before they before they God. trace the call. Well, yeah. it, it takes so long for just to even bring it up. But I'm like, yeah, because when she does finally bring it up, the f- cops' first response is, "Well, we got a lot going on. Don't really have time for prank calls." Yeah, like the only reason they pay attention is because they already have like missing women from that house. Otherwise, they would not have given a fuck about these calls. Yeah, um, and then we also get like. Uh, it's it's my understanding that this is a bigger focus in the 2006 remake of this film because like we don't really know like we kind of give the psycho killer the name Billy because he's always talking about Billy and Agnes yeah and, you Billy alone with baby Agnes yeah and so we like are supposed to think that something's happened right and so that makes me think that, like, the psycho killer is meant to be Billy. Yeah. Like, maybe literally or figuratively, you know? Right, yeah. And that he did something to a little sister or something. Yeah, and then that's the and... thing. is just like, what did he do? Did he, like, hurt her? Right. Is this, like, incestuous? Like, what and it's like, is, what did he do? And the idea, I think, in the later ones is, like, he's back at the sorority house because it was like the house where he grew up and yeah. like murdered his family or yeah, something like yeah, that. Yeah. But like, we don't know in this movie. Yeah, it's true. It's very ambiguous. Like, we don't even know. This is a weird thing to say, but we don't even know if he's like enjoying killing these women. It almost kind of seems like it. it is like it's he's not. Yeah, it's impulsive and he's not like. I mean, the one time he has that freak out in the attic and starts breaking things. That's right. I don't know if that's because he's freaking out because he like can't stop. It's like right after he kills Mrs. Mack. Yeah. And it's like he freaks out about it in this weird way. And then it does seem like often after he kills somebody, that's when he does a call. Like he's trying to reach out. And like, yeah. I don't know. It's hard to tell like what his motive is, but like also what kind of motive do you have for just randomly killing a bunch of people? You know, like yeah. what motive is there? <laughs> yeah. Other than something has gone wrong in your life <laughs> and you need help. And you need help. Yeah. And the thing about when someone needs help like that, it's, I think, hard for somebody to know how to ask for that help. Yeah. Or even really understanding what kind of help they need. Right. Yeah. I I mean, he's in no position really to be able to even like talk to people. No. He just seems to be sort of like reliving his own past, maybe. Yeah. Which seems like also traumatic. Right. Yeah. Because he also talks about like he calls Barb Agnes before he kills her. So it's like he's not even killing these women. He's like killing things from his past. He's like he's not in reality. Yeah. No. And so then that does make it kind of interesting. Yeah. How impulsive it is and how he just uses things. And the one that stands out to me, actually. Yeah. Is are we supposed to think he's the one who went outside and slit that cop's throat? 
Oh, I mean, I don't I mean, know who yeah. else would have. Who else would have? But yeah. it seems so unlike his mo. I know, right? He like he's all over the place. Like, what's he yeah. doing out there? And then he like probably killed that lo- that little, little girl, girl Janice. And I was like, like, what? was that just because it, it happened on the way to getting to the house? Are are we also supposed to believe that like he's also the one who like attempted to rape that townie? Oh, maybe. Like, what is it? Just all the crime in this it's college town? Just this- <laughs> <laughs> it's all the Mona. <laughs> but that's the thing they're all the mona it could they be are, any yes. of them we're gonna talk about that more because like oh boy peter is also the basically mona. the mona <laughs> yeah um so i mean we've been talking about it so let's actually talk about it let's talk about the incompetence of law enforcement okay <laughs> in this yeah. movie yeah okay yeah no i think the main things that we haven't We've already talked about the really dumb small things. Well, not small. Big things. Really, really big, dumb big things stuff. that they've done yeah. where they're just sort of like, I mean, they're like unprofessional. Yeah. They're like laughing at this fellatio stuff when it's like, you need these girls like number. Yeah. This is a serious issue. Yeah. And like just not taking things seriously. No. They get sidetracked by things all the time. Like at one point he's like going to start helping with something and then they get a call about one of their own getting shot for trespassing oh, yeah. and they like get derailed by that. Are you talking about Lieutenant Fuller? Yeah. He's kind of the main cop guy. Who I think we're supposed to like, he's supposed to be like the one good cop. Is Cause he? Cause he's the one who listens to them. But does like, he though? But like, does he? Yeah. And I don't remember which cop it is, but the things that really get me are like their reason for not listening. Yeah. One cop is like 90% of girls who go missing are at some cabin with their boyfriends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I would love to see the stats on that, uh, sir. Cite, cite your source. Cite your sources. Yeah. Also, it doesn't matter why somebody is missing. They're missing. They're missing. It's your job to look for them. Yeah. And I also looked this up and there is no waiting period for like reporting no, somebody there's missing not. in there's Canada. Not. Yeah. Like there isn't. Yeah. So like. Look for this girl. Yeah. The fact that a couple of her friends, her boyfriend and her dad are like, hey, she's definitely missing. This is not normal behavior for her. They keep talking about how like the cops didn't take it seriously. And Jess is like, yeah, I don't know why. They like think she's shacked up somewhere and Mm -hmm. keeps having to be like, but that's not who she is. Like she's. Chris comes in, like her boyfriend, yeah. Chris, and is like, that's not who she is. Yeah. If d- she was shacked up, it would be with, with him. him. He's, He's right, right here. here. He's he was not. like playing hockey or something. Yeah. Like, come on. And it's like, when, and yeah, and it's the same thing when our little 13-year-old Janice goes missing, where they yeah. are. It's the same thing. It's like, well, you know, she's just coming home late. Don't worry about it. Yeah. It's like, it's your job. It's like, yeah, it's like the, these cops are like allergic to doing their job. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it doesn't really, because they do say, like, oh, well, we're really busy. Like, I, they're just kind of hanging around. I know. They're not, they have a lot of time to, like, make jokes and la- They're not doing anything. They're not. It doesn't look no, like No, it, it seems anyway. like this is their big case that they should be focused on. But, Absolutely. Right. And then, like, and then also when they finally do, do something, it's, we're just going to look for these two girls using the same search yeah. party. Where even though in a location only one, one of, of them, them was went, known to be in. But that makes sense. That's fine. And not a waste of our resource. Um, <laughs> no, and it's just like throughout. Yes. These sorority sisters are doing what like we're told people are supposed to do. Yeah. Where it's like they are reaching out for help. Yeah. They are asking for help and they're just ignored. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I did find this one article on Morbidly Beautiful mm. called The Radical Legacy of Black Christmas oh, that okay. had a lot of the same ACAP feelings that I had about yeah. it. And like even went farther and like listed a number of instances where in real life, yeah. women have alerted police yeah. to like their impending danger yeah. and they were ignored. Yeah. And then like subsequently they were fucking murdered yeah. and cops were like had the information yeah. and did nothing. I think that it's my understanding that like the rationale is, well, a law hasn't been broken yet. Right. No. And then that's what made me think of, do you know, you know, sometimes I'm a bit of a like law freak. Um, <laughs> there's Town of Castle Rock v. Gonzalez, a Supreme Court case. Oh, okay. Um, from late 90s, early thousands. Okay. Something like that. Yeah, early thousands. Um, it's a case where a woman had a restraining order against her ex-husband, mm-hmm. protecting her and her kids yeah. from said ex-husband. Ex-husband kidnaps the children, which is what most kidnappings are, mm-hmm. right? Non-custodial yeah. parents. Non-custodial parents. She goes yep. to the, she calls the cops multiple times. Yep. She goes to them yep. and is a horrible case where the kids end up dying. They end oh. up getting murdered and the Supreme Court fucking rules yeah. that this woman has no right to like sue the police force mm-hmm. or anything like that mm-hmm. because they were never mandated to enforce the uh, restraining order. Um, so it's like, then what even is a fucking restraining order if it doesn't have point. to be enforced? What's the fucking point of it? Yeah. Where it is, it's like that same kind of rationale of like, like, so it's like, even if a crime is being committed, they still aren't going to do anything about yeah. it. So then it's like, well, then what are they doing? What are they fucking there for? Yeah. And like, what are they well, there for they're, in this movie? Because they're certainly not there to provide mental health supports for the psycho killer. No. 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 Definitely they're not. They're not there to do a thorough search of the house. No. Oh, my gosh. No. So and, and that's the other thing is like at the end of the film, Jess has killed Peter because yes. she was scared and thought it was him. But it ends up not being him. I do him. really love actually what this film does where oh, yeah. I mean, it does sort of set Peter up as a good red herring. Sure does. Yeah. Ways, mm-hmm. By giving them like the same lines yes and then when he is talking through like the window into the yes. garage before he fucking breaks the window and goes in you fucking freak yeah um yeah of course she's fucking terrified of, of you. course yeah but the way his voice distorts it like sounds like oh the phone yeah. calls it like sounds weird yeah. and phone call it's like yeah. it's well done it's yeah. well done yeah but like so at the end of the film again they have not searched this house no which really does seem like i think they've searched within the house but they sure shit haven't checked the attic which seems right. pretty common I mean, procedure to yeah. sweep the entire house and they haven't even talked to jess because instead they're gonna sedate her and let her rest right which so, they think is for her own good i guess but, and they're letting her rest like in her room in the sorority house where like they know for a fact people have just been murdered Where she just saw her friends like yeah murdered their bodies like displayed on their beds but i think they're just like it was peter Case closed. Dust off hands. Don't worry about her trauma. Yeah. Don't worry about any of it. Don't worry about getting a statement from her about what happened. They don't even have confirmation that she was the one who killed Peter. Right. Because they find her unconscious. Yes. Like she faints or whatever. Yeah. It's like kind of unclear. Yeah. So it's like, for all they know, the psycho killer killed Peter. And they, true. And they just straight up leave her in that house with alone, a single cop outside outside and like we see the psycho killer like slink back up into the attic and just wait for their next move you right know? yeah and then we get the phone call the phone's ringing oh and nobody that's answers the last it. thing we have is the yeah, phone ringing. and nobody answers it and so no we're left being like for all we know just is fucking dead yeah her her fate is very uncertain yeah, yeah. so yeah it's, it's a really interesting way of playing the final girl really in like one of the earliest instances of a final girl. Yeah. Yeah. Where we really don't know. Right. And I think what this really goes back to is that like 
the way cops treat people depends on who those people are. Absolutely. And it's like we see that in how they treat the townies versus how they treat the college kids where yeah. they do sort of brush aside Janice's mom when the college mm-hmm. kids come in, you know. Mm-hmm. But it's also in like how they treat women versus oh, yeah. how they treat men. Yeah. And how they like listen to each other and don't listen to these women who are actually going through this and have actual information about this. Yep. And just like make these assumptions about who these girls are and what's going on with them. And it really is just like another situation where like it all comes down to that goddamn misogyny, man. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. And like, the, yeah, that's the thing. It's just like, because who are cops? Cops are men. Yeah. It's just a bunch of white guys. In and, this movie. and again, like the second wave feminism and like the backlash against it of just like, oh, you know, the girls these days are just, just harlots. Yeah. They just want their sexual liberation. They're burning their bra- bras all over yeah. the place. And. So, of course, they're just shacking up with some boy. Yeah. Who cares that their friends think that that would be wildly out of character for her? Yeah. Trust me. I'm a cop. I know what your friend is like. Yeah. Yeah. It is just so gross. It is really gross. Yeah. And very accurate to real life. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, yep. Where, where's the lie? Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. And I think this just goes, leads us really well into um, this really great... Um, I found this really great article by Ashley Manu, and that's how I'm choosing to say Ashley's last name. Ashley, reach out if that's not how you say your last name. Um, But she wrote this article called Black Christmas and the Horror of Being Female in a Patriarchal Society. And like, yeah, that's pretty much it, right? Um, Oh, I also went to Ashley Manu's website and in her little bio, she says, writer, comma, Gemini. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought you'd like. Yes. Snaps for Ashley. Um, and, uh, Manu starts by like with a a personal anecdote, which is really interesting and ends up posing like a really, a really important question that like when women are the targets of violence in horror films, it kind of goes back to our, our talk of exploitation films. Like, is that feminist or exploitative? Right. Right. You know? Cause yeah. Cause we're watching these women be brutalized and stuff. Cause on the one hand, females and women as the main characters and like things within the horror genre do make it more feminist because we're like getting a female point of view and often there's at least one who's like ends up becoming really badass and like taking back control yeah but then you know the counterpoint to that is that like maybe the main characters are always girls because women make easy targets yeah right so uh, ashley mentions and i just really couldn't agree more is like black christmas is a film that shows how a male controlled culture makes it practically impossible for women to express their bodily autonomy independence and sexuality safely Mm. even within their own homes yeah like claire mrs mac barb like they're just in the comfort of their own home yeah and they're not even safe there Mm -hmm. right um the women of Pi Kappa Sigma, that's the name of their sorority, Pi Kappa Sigma. Um, they're failed at every turn, which we already talked, like the co- the cops. And also, I would say the medical professionals, yeah. like the one who just sedates Jess. Yeah, absolutely. Like, she doesn't need down. any more medical supervision. Don't even worry about she it. She can she's just fine. sleep it off in this house that may or may not solve a psycho like, killer Like, do you even know it. why she's unconscious right now? Like, does she have a head wound? Like, is she? Yeah. Does she have a concussion? No. Nope, what have you matter. done for this woman? Yep. They're, they're just failed at every turn. Right. God. Um, And it is a metaphor, a really good metaphor for how society in general, like, just turns a blind eye to the violence that happens against women. Yeah. Um, Especially the violence that happens against women when society feels like women are not sufficiently controlled enough. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So that's really what I think, really what this movie's all about. Right. (laughs) And we see that 
again in like the the a plot of the psycho killer killing these women in the comfort of their own sorority home um but also in the b plot of jess trying to seek an abortion and i think one way that this film really like shows that this movie is about like misogyny in this larger way is in that way where we don't actually ever really see the killer yeah because it doesn't matter. Like, we never learn yeah. about his backstory. No. It doesn't focus on him. So he can even be this symbol. Yeah. Yeah, he's like a disembodied voice and like this one little shot of brown eye. Yeah, <laughs> and right. it's so like, so he can represent so many men. Yeah. And misogyny yeah. in general. And like, like, what do we know about him? He's like aggressive and like kind of distraught and like full of rage and violence. And like, yeah, that's what yeah. real life misogyny is. Yeah. And like, sometimes... It can be, like, kind of hard to see, either because it gets dismissed by people, like, it gets dismissed by all these cops, mm-hmm. or because it's so pervasive. Yeah. It's, like, hard to imagine anything else. Like, the girls don't really think too much about the phone calls at first, because it's just sort of, like, part of their lives. lives, you know? Yeah. They don't think to, like, call the cops about it until it becomes this bigger thing, because it's so pervasive. Yeah. And and Barb so nonchalantly saying that you can't yeah. rape a townie. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But in it's like, and then meanwhile, this murderer is yeah. like lurking through the, like he's literally everywhere just yeah. lurking around yeah. like ever present in our society oh oh yeah. the symbols the yeah. themes they're theming and like <laughs> and like even the ways that he gets like kind of childish sometimes where uh-huh. like misogynistic yeah. men do and like the way and then on the other hand it gets tinged with the sexual dominance yeah. the way it always does and the way it's like aided by advancements in technology like, I'm just thinking about how, like, the internet age has really helped stalkers <laughs> in True. so many ways, you yeah. know? And so it's, like, it's always there and you can't always see where it's coming from because it's, like, oh, it, it's probably this controlling abusive boyfriend because yeah. why wouldn't it be? And, like, it is. But it's also the cops it's themselves. Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's also the medical professional, like you said. And it's also, like, the actual killer. And it's, like, all these women being left to fend for themselves. Yeah. And, like... And even Claire's dad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, even he's, like... Yep. Kind of, yeah. And it's, like, the fact that the story doesn't resolve, like we were talking about. Yeah. And ends with just still in danger and maybe even dead. It's, yeah. like, yeah, because even when you've dealt with this one abusive man, yeah. there's always another man nearby with, like, an equal potential for violence. Yeah. Yeah, because, like, these women are constantly dealing with men enforcing their will upon them. And so, like, the, again, why we like don't know who the psycho killer is because it doesn't really matter. Because it doesn't matter who it is or what even their motivation is yeah it's just like it's it's society man. everywhere yeah. yeah and it's like it, we see it again in how like peter and our psycho killer billy whatever we want to call him they're like kind of the same monster in a lot of ways not just in the way that peter's like this red herring for him right but like they're both figures of this like very real harm yeah that these women are facing yeah and it's like they both have this violence directed outwards towards the women and around them. Yeah. And these women have done nothing but like kind of exist fully as like autonomous people. Yeah. And like trying to pursue higher like, education. Both Peter yeah. and the caller, they just need Jess's attention. They like just need yeah. women's attention and they're going to throw fucking fits if they don't get it. Yeah. And when things don't go their way, like whenever they feel out of control, they like lash out in these different violent ways. Yeah. And so it's like even though the only actual like violence we see Peter do is against like objects like the piano or right, the Christmas yeah. ornaments. It's like you can see the line from that to the killer. Yeah, because it's still like an intimidation technique. You yeah. Know, so and, in like that yeah. way you can kind of see why the A plot and the B plot about the abortion line yeah. are really kind of the same plot. They really are. Yeah. 
And do you you want to talk more about abortion? I do. Yeah. So yeah, like I was saying, we were talking about this off mic is that I spent like an hour looking into the history of abortion access in the United States um, until I realized slash remembered that this <laughs> film is Canadian. Yeah, um, I didn't even know this movie was this, Canadian. This film is technically Canadian. And I would never say that Canada and the United States are the same thing. Right. I would never say that. We're very different countries. Yeah. Um, but we do have a lot of similarities in mm-hmm. uh, culturally, right? Yeah. So um, basically, it seemed like before, as far as Canada is concerned, pre-1968, abortion was pretty much illegal mm. and incredibly difficult to access safely um, in Canada, right? And so I, I learned a little bit about the, the U.S. history, and it could probably be, you know, um, uh, extrapolated to Canada as well. Because I imagine at least the cultural conversations going on were probably pretty similar. Absolutely. Where, like, it was a debate in the zeitgeist around yeah. the same time, probably yeah. in both countries. So I just have a couple fun facts for us, although yeah. this is very much relevant to the United States, but oh well. Um, so in 1847... Uh, doctors in the United States band together to form the AMA, the American Medical Association, Mm -hmm. um, which is a male-dominated authority (laughs) on medical practices. Oh, wow. Where, um, and really kind of like one of the first things the AMA starts to do is scrutinize reproductive health care workers, like (laughs) midwives and nurses. Oh, yeah. Um, Because they have authority in a field that the men want to take. Yeah, basically. And so... That uh, happened even in the Middle Ages when doctors first started to become a thing. Yeah. medicine yeah yeah when medicine first started yeah yeah that's always been a thing where men are like this is now our field women get out yeah it's like um we've been practicing this for fucking decades centuries yeah midwives midwives and doulas have been like yeah doing abortions yeah for like we've got important information that we could maybe even work together on yeah men are like no no there's nothing you could possibly teach us yeah Right. So they, they're they kind of phasing out those services that midwives and nurses provide, um, making it harder for them to pr- legally perform those abortions. And meanwhile, yeah, the AMA is composed of physicians who lack expertise of pregnancy and product- reproductive yeah. health. <laughs> oh, God. Um, by 1910, I'm jumping ahead quite a few years here. By 1910, uh, abortion is outright illegal in every state in the union um, at every stage of pregnancy. There were some exceptions in the in- in instance of saving a patient's life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the decision, you know, d- who gets to decide if you're actually saving your patient, if an abortion will save right. a person's life, is the doctor mm-hmm. in 1910 in the United States, 95% of which were men. Right. right. Of course. Um and then I, you know, all of our listeners have been wondering, but when does the racism? <laughs> I was, I was going to say, were those also white men? It, it comes in right here. So, because by the time, because like by the early 1900s, early 20th century, the U.S. is experiencing a lot of increased migration mm-hmm. and immigration, rather, excuse me, and. People, politicians, and, and uh, you know, other citizens are like worried about they're basically being less white people, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like uh, really cracking down on access to abortion specifically for upper class white women, Mm -hmm. uh, wanting them to have more kids. But see, here's the thing is that upper class people will always be able to access abortion. Right. Yeah. They can go fuck off to Sweden for, you know, a couple of weeks and have a nice vacation and get an abortion there. Like they're, you know, that's just not how it works. Um, And then we, we really start to see, 
the consequences of these practices by the 30s because making abortion illegal doesn't keep people from having abortions. It just keeps them from having safe abortions. Of course. Um, so we do really start to see by the 1930s like a lot of unsafe and illegal abortions mm. killing thousands of women, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, and then, of course, also just like generally the stigma around abortion in general, which is also a huge, huge aspect of it. Right. Oh, yeah. And then by the 1960s, at least the early 1960s, we also have a lot of pregnant women experiencing uh, birth defects from taking thalidomide. Oh, yeah. So you know what thalidomide is? Not really. Okay, yeah. So it was basically just like an anti-nausea drug. Mm, It was basically supposed to like take care of like the symptoms of being pregnant. Right, the morning sickness. Morning sickness and all that stuff. But it caused pretty severe birth defects. Hmm. And so I think once... But, you know, and then people were taking thalidomide through like the 50s and 60s. And I think like by the early 60s, they started to really realize that. Oh, oh, this is actually an issue. The thalidomide is causing really severe birth defects. Uh, That was kind of the things that then women in the 60s who were just like, wait a minute, I'm pregnant and I've taken thalidomide, you know, wanting basically uh, the thalidomide fallout kind of brings a greater support for like abortion law reform, basically. Mm. Um Things kind of happen until then. In 1964, there is there is some abortion law reform, uh, something the ASA is created, which stands for the Association for the Study of Abortion, mm-hmm. which is cool. Um, and they're kind of like strategically, incrementally trying to increase abortion access. This is where they're like, they're advocating for those, you know, quote unquote, medically necessary mm-hmm. abortions, right? Um you know, and I think it kind of seems like their long-term plan was to put larger abortion reform laws in place, but they're like, we got to start. Yeah. We got to start small. Right. Um, And then, yeah. And then in 1968 is when the Canadian federal government passes the criminal law amendment act, which legalizes, helps legalize abortion and contraception as well. Um, It's also, it's not technically until the 1980s that Canada's uh, Supreme court, enshrines the right like reproductive mm. health care right. sorry reproductive rights yeah um in their constitution and then in 1973 stateside that's when we get roe versus wade um which is where um the u.s supreme court rules that the due process clause of the 14th amendment in the constitution protects the right to abortion in particular the supreme court recognized that for the first time the constitutional right to privacy is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate a pregnancy yeah uh, roe versus wade protected the right to abortion in all 50 states making abortion services safer and more accessible throughout the country um the decision also set a legal precedent that affected dozens of subsequent supreme court cases and i think also taught us a lesson about relying on the supreme court yeah right to do yeah. anything for us to do anything yes <laughs> Like, um, okay, Roe v. Wade, so, but then what? Well, right. so this is so this history, you know, the U.S. history and the Canadian history does inform our our world as the viewers of this film, right? Yeah, but also the world that Jess is living in as she chooses to get an abortion, and uh, this is honestly how I feel, and it, I don't think this is a new thought, but this is my deep thought, you know, <laughs> is that the history of abortion access is just so deeply rooted in trying to control women's bodies right. and controlling their reproductive freedom. And I think, to me, obviously, like, there's, I think, a big part of the abortion 
debate, quote unquote debate, mm-hmm. right, is that like we don't really have a full understanding of when a life becomes a life, right? It's just like, when is that person actually a person, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I, and for some people, that's a, a big aspect of it, especially I think for people who are very religious, you right. know, but really, I think a huge part of the restriction of access to reproductive health care is just like the fact that women actually have a significant amount of power mm-hmm. in our bodies. And like, the the fact is, it's like, yeah, like women, biological females, whatever you want to say, like, are the ones who get pregnant and like do have to carry the vast majority of the burden to procreate. And so like when they have access to more choices to maybe not do that, it like scares the fuck out of the patriarchy. Right. Yeah. It makes it feel like yeah. something is being taken away from the men. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Women. Yeah, actually, we really do have like a very significant amount of power within our bodies and like the choices that we get to make within our bodies and like restricting the choices women are allowed to make with their bodies is just part of right patriarchy. And I think it also is about like, like what Peter says in this movie where he's like, this is fine. I'm leaving the conservatory. Yeah. We're going to get married. Yeah. And just is like, I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And I think that's also I'm not, part I don't want to marry you. The yeah. abortion restrictions is like, well, if women have kids, it becomes harder for them to work. Yep. Like pregnancy takes a big toll on their bodies. Yeah. That makes it harder to work. You know, it just makes it harder for them to have their own independence outside of the home. Yeah. Like Peter really wants Jess to just sort of be encased in whatever home he is imagining for them. Yeah. And Jess was like, no, I am my own independent person. I'm going to go out there and do what I already said I was going to do. And just follow along, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Just be like, well, okay, so here's the plan now. Yeah. For uh, I, Peter, have made the plan for both of us. Aren't I so generous? Right. Right, Yeah. And then when Jess is like, no, No. I'm not going to marry you. I'm not having this baby. I was clear when we first met that this is my goals for my life. And you might have changed and that's fine, but I haven't. So So, mm. see ya. Yeah, and then he gets really, really, really upset. God. Yeah. And blows his fucking piano recital. Yeah, Take that, that, bitch. Fucking guy, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but also, like, talk about selfish, right? I can't oh. believe you're bringing this to me right now. You know how important this afternoon <laughs> is to me. And then, no. And also the, like, yeah, we already talked about it, like, breaking into the basement of this yes. house. It's just, like, it's locked. Jess saw you and isn't going to open the door for you. So you break a window? I mean, I guess the only way I can see it from his perspective is that he he heard her, like, screaming or whatever and thought that she was in danger. Maybe. But she is clearly there looking scared at At him. Yeah. Like, but men either don't see it when women are afraid of them Mm -hmm. or like it. Yeah. Or don't care. Or don't Don't care. care. Yeah. I don't know. But it's just such a thing. (sighs) Fucking Fucking Peter. Peter. I'm, I'm happy that Jess gets to kill him. I am too. Yeah. That was in my notes too. I was yeah. like, I don't care that he's not the psycho killer or whatever. Fuck that guy. Right. <laughs> um, it's like we... Um, and it, you know what? He was trespassing. He, yeah. It's, it reminds me of our Midsommar episode oh, yeah. where, you know, it's just like, this is not proportional punishment for what, what christian is not receiving proportional punishment for his crimes being burned alive and it's like yeah. but isn't he though <laughs> isn't, isn't it proportional <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um so i also uh, you know because when after we finished watching we finished watching black christmas i couldn't help but like I know that there are so many horror movies that take place specifically at a sorority house or just on a college campus more generally. Mm. And I was like, what's up with that? Mm -hmm. Right. And 
honestly, I tried to look into it. I was like, why are horror movies set in sorority houses? And I wasn't really, I just basically got listicles. Yeah. Of like, all these horror movies that take place in a sorority house. I'm like, yeah, but why? I know. I'm so tired of the listicles. The internet is dead. Yeah. So um, I found a really great article at (laughs) bestcolleges.com. I know, right? By Genevieve Carlton. She's got a PhD in history, so I trust her. Okay, I trust her. Um, But this is a history of women in higher education, again, specifically in the United Mm. States. Um, so just found some really interesting stuff that I, I think you'll really like. Um, basically in the Western world where there is that organized education, like a college or university, women were effectively banned from being enrolled in college or any other kind of degree earning program until basically the 19th century. And even then, you know, it wasn't even really. Yeah. The education they got was not Mm -mm. the same. Mm -mm. Uh, yeah. So like single sex education, and like educating women and girls, right? It was kind of rooted in the idea that women didn't need a degree. Mm-hmm. They needed to learn certain skills that were socially acceptable for them, right? So the skills they needed to be a homemaker, a mother, maybe a governess, yeah. a domestic servant, something like that, right? Yeah. Um, and, and skills so, that made them look good on the marriage market. Uh huh. Yeah, to get their MRS, yep. These gender norms effectively exclude women from higher education for centuries, right? Yeah. And so I I did not know, I learned this, that in 1836, Wesleyan becomes the first women's college in the world. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, those, uh, what what we call the Seven Sisters, Mm -hmm. the like kind of female Ivy League, whatever, kind of start to open up over the next few decades. Hmm. Yeah. so, yeah, that's that's the other thing is that, like, in the 19th century, women's uh, role in higher education doesn't really get going until the 20th century. But in the 19th century, uh, what we get is, like, kind of two paths. We see uh, women's colleges, mm-hmm. right, of which you and I are both alumna of. Yeah. Which I think opened just, in 1854, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, before the University of Oregon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously we have a little bit of bias here. Um, <laughs> that women's colleges in general, like a specific place for women to be educated or co-educational programs. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I love I love this quote it says nevertheless even women's colleges treated higher education for women as dangerous experiments <laughs> according to historian Elwin Elwin excuse me Ellen Horowitz uh colleges for men modeled their campuses on like an academic village right where men slept in the dorms across the quad to go to their mm-hmm. villages whatever whereas like women's colleges worked a lot more like a seminary Mm. where like female students are living and studying in one building right basically like this architectural choice to keep them in one place to keep women from quote-unquote losing their virtue well it was like that mills hall mills was originally just mills hall yeah it was just mills hall and and the women lived there and studied there absolutely they would drive up in their carriage to get dropped off (laughs) yep 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 um Oh, this is great. You're going to love this. Uh, so in 1837, Oberlin opens mm-hmm. its doors to all students. It's like one of the first universities to go co-ed. Mm-hmm. Um, and they end up including women and people of color, which yeah. is pretty good for Oberlin. However, don't get too excited about Oberlin <laughs> just yet because I got something for you here. Uh, the year Oberlin first began admitting women, female students were dismissed from their cl- Monday classes so that they could do the male students' laundry. No! Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> That's so, so gross. So it seems pretty similar for 
women trying to gain higher education in Canada. Um, it doesn't really seem like they went so much to the direction of women's colleges. Mm. I think they went more the direction of making their yeah. colleges co-ed. Um, but again, yeah, this is like in the context of this film and like the world that this film is taking place in and the world that these characters exist in, right? They technically have a protected right to reproductive freedom and they have access to quality, edu- like higher education. Right. And of course there's like, there's the, it's cost prohibitive, right? right Again, yeah. it's second wave feminism. We're not the really, classes, yeah. yeah, we're not taking into account the intersectionality of race, class and sexuality. Yeah. Um, so even though they have the protected right of, of reproductive freedom and access to higher education, they still are faced with like these crushing double standards Yeah, in this patriarchal society. And again, what could be more terrifying than existing as a woman in a patriarchal society where like the cops don't give a fuck about you. If you go missing, eh, you probably just ran off with your boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the doctor's just going to sedate you after you've su- mm-hmm. suffered a terrible trauma. Yeah. <laughs> and no, and I do the think death it's of several of your friends. I do think it's interesting that even in this movie that is clearly like whether intentional or not has mm-hmm. this kind of like really feminist message. It really does. You know, yeah. and shows these women as like full characters. Yeah. The only person who we like actually know what they're studying is Peter. We don't know what any of these women are this studying. This is true. Yeah. Like, what are Jess's plans for the future? Yeah, she said that she's talked about them and that's what she wants. But like, what, that's what is cool. It? Yeah. And it's cool that we know that all of these women are college students, yeah. but we don't actually care about what they're learning. And like, yeah. sure, it's because this is like the off season. They're on break. It's Christmas break, yeah. But like, still, what are they there for? Yeah. What What are her plans? Yeah. So like even in this movie that's like dealing with these things still can't actually quite conceptualize women as like scholars. Yeah. But like, what are you studying? Right? As like, like learners. Yeah. What are they studying? Yeah. yeah. Or are they just there to have sex and drink? Right. On their parents' dime. Yeah. Right. Like and, Claire's dad thinks. And try and find a husband or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. Okay. I, I do actually have one, though, just going back to your original question mm-hmm. about like why horror movies in sororities. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's similar to one of the theories that I have, or at least that I, I saw other people having mm-hmm. about why, um, like murders at Christmas time. Right. Or during yeah. the holidays. Yeah. Which is that like, it's a good reason to get people together in a confined space and to like limit the pool of who could be the suspects. Fair. If we're all together in the sorority house. Right. Yeah. We have one central location, which is again, an aspect of a slasher. So right? like, so yeah. there's an extent to which it is just sort of like a literary convenience. Truly. Yeah. 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 In the same way that like, home invasions when it's all in the home you know like yeah. it's like that same sort of and, thing and yeah and taking place in a sorority like hits both of those right it's like yeah. it's like a home yeah you know and yeah we've got yeah literary convenience of all of our characters being in one central location yeah yeah and double extra good because they're hot young women who we love to see get murdered who may or may not be sexually active yes, yes. <laughs> we love to see get murdered yep okay so then, yeah, the only other thing we haven't really talked about with this movie is that it's literally called Black Christmas. Right. This is our December episode for yeah, Christmas. For Christmas. Yep, the movie's so, called Black Christmas. Yep. So, like, what's the deal with Christmas horror? Right. Because, like I mentioned at the beginning, it's kind of neither here nor there that it takes place at Christmas. Yeah. Like, it could take place at the end of the school year in late spring, early summer. Right. Yeah. Because the whole point is that like people are leaving. It's less densely populated as it usually is when the school year is in full swing. So why Christmas? Yeah. Could have been spring break. That's another great time for wild things to happen. And I definitely had some theories 
not just for this film, but like in general, why there are so many, because this isn't the only Christmas horror movie. I'm sure you could name. Oh my gosh, there's so freaking many. I'm yeah. sure you could name a ton right Krampus now. Krampus is really good. Yeah. Violent Night came out last year. That yeah, one's that really one good. Out. It is violent. Uh, Silent Night with Kira Knightley. Mm-hmm. Better Watch Out again. D- you know, and yeah, like some of them, the point is, is that they're Christmas themed. But yeah, so many of them are just at like Christmas. Better Watch Out. It's just like, this doesn't need to be a Christmas movie. It just it is. could be whenever. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So before we get into my theories about why that is, yeah, we're going to lay some groundwork okay. with the history of Christmas a little bit. Sure. Not too much, but like one. the dark parts. Mm-hmm. Because... Is this like once Christmas has been thoroughly paganized? Well, yeah, or? there's definitely because I think we all... Maybe not all. I shouldn't assume things. But like a lot of people know that Santa Claus comes from like like Santa Claus as a figure comes from these like kind of notoriously dark and like wild pagan roots. And Violent Night gets into that. Yeah. It's really good. Violent Night's really good. Next December. We'll do do that one. one. Yeah. Yeah. That one does look good. Yeah. Because there are a number of like pagan figures, you know, folklore lore figures, mm-hmm. mythological figures who were sort of combined with St. Nicholas, mm-hmm. our very Christian figure, mm-hmm. to form our modern understanding of Santa Claus, which you're nodding along because you know all these things. And I think also Coca-Cola. Yeah. <laughs> informs our modern idea of Santa Claus as that well. That is true. That yeah. is true as well. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, but to keep to the darker stuff, yeah, the yeah, reason yeah. why I think Christmas oh, becomes horror. Capitalism is very dark. <laughs> anyway. Yes, anyway. Yes, we will get into the Industrial Revolution. Just wait. Neither Industrial (laughs) nor a revolution. Yeah. Um, But starting off, like Germanic peoples celebrated a lot of Midwestern festivals. We talking Goths, we talking Celts. All over the place, man. But like right now we're talking about Yule celebrations. Sure, yeah. You know, which depending on where you were could include the Wild Hunt, which I don't know if you're familiar with. It's, um, It's often led by Woden. So like Odin when it becomes Norse, you know, that same sort of like God father deity figure. Right. And it's literally a hunt where he's like leading his pack of often like undead, like spirits, ghosts, things like that. And often wolves or even like werewolves, depending on if the mythology for that existed in that area. And like, it's always, it's either like a bad sign. If you see it, Mm -hmm. that means something bad's going to happen. Or there are lots of stories about getting caught up in it and either having to hunt or being hunted or being taken away to like fae type situations. Yeah. The wild hunt gets involved in all of that fae stuff. Oh yeah, you gotta be careful with the fae. Yeah. Yeah. And then another early still kind of Germanic area is Velsnickel. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Which I, he wore furs and this like mask with a long tongue, which is already just kind of terrifying. <laughs> it is, yeah. But he has that that idea of like, you know, the call versus the presence. Yes. Only he'd be like, I will beat the naughty yes. children with a switch. Yes. And to give cake and sweets to the other yep. children. Have you been impish or admirable? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's like, these are all sort of like the, you know, quote unquote, wild man sort of folktale mm-hmm. figures. And both the Wild Hunt and Belsnickel, they're both representations of like chaos and like fertility and sexuality. Always. You know, but like untamed nature and like fur of the beast and rawr. Yeah. But also some of their traits became part of santa claus like odin's long white beard yeah yeah belsnickel's furred outfit that's why santa claus has his fur you know and so like they sort of are refigured during christianization to become a part of santa claus yeah and then there's also once we have saint nick a lot of his like companions where like he would do the good side and do nice things for good children and then he would have his darker companions with him 
like black pete like Krampus. yes yeah yes. like people who would like either like listen through the chimneys that's where the chimneys come in they would uh-huh. listen through to hear if they were being bad uh-huh yeah huh. or like Krampus is literally like a devilish creature it's yeah. got like horns yeah. and shit yeah. you know and they would like hurt children or like kidnap them yeah. like it's literally terrifying yeah well and i think those serve a function to like keep kids in line right yeah yeah Yeah. and i think also even now that we've sort of moved on from that and just have it all combined into this one santa claus figure yeah i'm not the first person to point out that santa claus himself is like kind of terrifying because it's like he knows when you're sleeping and when you're awake he's invading your home he knows if you've been bad or good right yeah he's like deciding your definition of good or bad yeah Yeah. it's like these are all things that like a psycho killer does in these slashers yeah they creep into your home yeah they decide if you're good or bad and they're gonna kill you for it you know if you're the virgin or the whore yeah they're watching you they're stalking you yeah like santa claus is like one bead removed from a psycho killer truly except he brings presents yeah and eats your cookies but only by the grace of god man Right, yeah. Heaven forbid you get Krampus instead. Yeah, right? Totally. Yeah. And then, okay, so then there is this fact that we have these, this Christmas stuff happening, but thanks to the Puritans, Christmas kind of died down for a while. Oh, like um, Cromwell. Yeah, yeah. He tried, he like banned Christmas. In the, and, U- in the United Kingdom, yeah, right? Yeah, but England. there are a lot of things like Puritans in America being like, we don't want all this frivolous shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it became a thing for a while where like, it used to be like those 12 days of Christmas yeah. where you would celebrate all of them. And then it became like you'll have a nice church service and that'll be good enough. And then also industrial revolution where you're fucking working. You'll get like one day off from work to celebrate Christmas. You're not going to have time for all those 12 days. And you're definitely not going to have time to go finish, like visit your family. And you might not even get Christmas. You'll probably get boxing day. I'll get the day after. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, and we genuinely have Charles Dickens, to thank for a lot of our modern Christmas traditions. I un- I I knew that. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't just a Christmas carol because that was actually his fourth Christmas story. Jesus. And then he went on to write four more. Was he like, I don't know much about Charles Dickens as a person. Was he particularly religious or? No, okay. actually. So there are different reasons for his. I mean, in general, the Vic- early Victorian era started to see a resurgence in an interesting Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that was actually because of Queen Victoria. And Prince she Albert. Christmas. Well, her um her mother and one of her grandmothers mm. were German. Oh. Okay. And so that's actually where the uh the like Christmas tree started to become popular because mm-hmm. they brought it over from Germany and Queen Victoria used it. And her and Prince Albert would actually start to have these like family gatherings for Christmas mm-hmm. around the Christmas tree. Mm-hmm. And so all the journals would like write about it and like the newspapers would be like a big deal yeah. going on. So if the Queen's doing it, then other people probably want to well, do, it too. do it. Yeah. And then you have the Charles Dickens side mm-hmm. where Industrial Revolution, he's seeing that the way Christmas has been done isn't really working anymore. And there have been some other there were other people who had written about christmas before that and like some of the older traditions of it and he was like well what can we do for traditions now and he really sort of made it a little bit more secular and also just sort of like a little bit easier for the common worker to do so that's why it's more of like what our modern christmas is where it's more about getting together with your family it's Mm -hmm. not like these big feasts and like huge 12 days occasion you know and you're like don't necessarily need to go to church you just need to be with your family yeah which is what we see in A Christmas Carol. Or else ghosts will haunt you. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And I think 
there's another aspect also that we need to point out. I'll get to the ghost in a second, okay. but I'm not done with Charles Dickens. Because the other thing to point out is that he wrote for money. Of course. He made his money through his writing. Yeah. And so you have to think, okay, there was already a resurgence in interest in Christmas. Yeah. Something he was contributing to. He wrote Christmas stories. People liked them. Yeah. They bought, you know, they read them. Yeah. That incentivizes him to write more. Yeah. People get even more interested in Christmas because they're reading about it more. It becomes this loop. Other writers are like, oh, this Christmas thing is pretty fucking big. Yeah. Let's all keep writing about Christmas. And it keeps happening. And so I could see like Black Christmas comes out. Yeah. It does pretty well. Yeah. People like it. Yeah. yeah. In both Canada and in America in the US. Yeah. And so like, yeah, you're kind of incentivized to do not just other like holiday themed ones like Halloween, but then also other Christmas themed. Yeah. Like it becomes incentivized to do yeah. it because people want it. Because somebody did it. There's a demand for it. Yeah. And there's money to be made. So you might as well be the supply. Yeah. If your job is professional writer. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, as you point out, significantly, a Christmas <laughs> choral features some ghosts. Ghosts. Four, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And they aren't. I mean, some of them are meant to be more frightening than others. This is true. Yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily say that it's at all a horror, you know? Yeah. But it does... It does link Christmas to, like, the specter of death, which is its own terrifying. I mean, he sees his own grave and stuff, you know? Like, there are horror terrifying elements. And, like, to return to those Yule celebrations from way back in the pagan days, lots of early winter celebrations were about acknowledging the ends of cycles. Yeah, because it's the end of the year. Yeah, Yeah. which means you're then going to ruminate about death. Yeah. Because that's the end of a cycle. Yeah. And, like, it was also a lot of different cultures considered that the veil or whatever you want to call right. it between the living and the dead was weaker yeah. during all of those dark months of winter. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so Christmas, actually, for a really long time, even before the, before Dickens, was a time for telling ghost stories. Hmm. And, like, stories in general, it was a time for sitting around, you know, yeah. especially pre-writing. You would tell stories when you gathered yeah, and you would gather traditions. in the winter. Yeah. And so you would tell ghost stories, among other stories. And like, I think Dickens helped bring that back as well as part of the traditions that he was bringing in. And so it's like, following him, we had like J.H. Waddell, Algernon Blackwood, Anne Barrage. Like, they're all writing these Christmas ghost stories and they're starting to get a little bit creepier with what Ooh. the ghost is doing. You know, and the Christmas part maybe isn't as relevant as it is in A Christmas Carol. They're like Christmas ghost stories. Yeah. You know? And I think what's interesting, a sort of similar thing that happens, um, I was listening to this podcast called She Done It, which is about like the golden age of murder mysteries and like detective fiction. Oh, okay. And like Agatha Christie. Yeah, exactly. Like Agatha Christie. Yeah. Basically, all those writers sort of like between the first and second world wars. Uh, and they were fucking full of Christmas mysteries, wow. like murders and then other types of mysteries as well. So yeah, Agatha Christie has a Christmas murders. I think Perot's Christmas. Poirot. However you say his goddamn name. Poirot. <laughs> I can't do it. Ah, it's French, dude. I don't know. It's not. Yeah. It's Belgian. He would be offended. Oh, and I think there were a lot of French people who would also be offended. <laughs> confused a frenchman with a belgian yeah uh, my apologies yeah but then there was also like all the frenchmen and the belgians yeah uh dorothy l sayers has some niall marsh like all sorts of mystery writers have mm-hmm. their murders in middle of the holidays and the host of the podcast she done it has this whole episode about it called crime at christmas mm. and carolyn crampton's her name she points out that christmas is a convenient and plausible reason for a novelist to gather characters together in one place just like we were talking about with the sorority yeah. including those who don't like each other very much 
but feel some kind of duty to be present for the celebration. Having just had Thanksgiving with my yeah, family. It, it rings true. It rings real true. Yeah. Yep. And then she also says the festive season can also escalate existing tensions yeah. or cause hidden secrets to be revealed, yeah. which can result in a tragedy. And I think that's as true for horror and like slashers as it is for like murder mysteries. Yeah. So all of that history, I think I have a few different reasons for why horror really resonates with Christmas. Yeah. One is just sort of like in general, that kind of like juxtaposition between the light and the darkness. Right. Which is really what winter holidays are about. Yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, it's also with Hanukkah as well. It's yeah. like all about it's all dark and like putting in bringing in the light. Yeah. Yeah. Right now we're sitting, it's already dark outside and you've got your little Christmas lights up, making yep. a little Christmas tree, bringing some light in. Yep. So like we all have always kind of known that winter is dark and kind of scary. Yeah. And it's like it's a time when food is food less plentiful. Yeah. Light yep. is less plentiful. And like yep. we try to cover that all up with like brightness and feasts and yep. things. And so I think horror at Christmas can be kind of like a catharsis mm-hmm. where we can kind of release. It's like yeah. a way to focus in on that darkness for a moment and then put it down again and feel safe in our light. Yeah. And I think also, especially the fact that like, it's, you know, that psych it's the end of the cycle. It's the mm-hmm. end of the year. Right. And so, yeah, the kind of something old ending and dying for like this new thing yeah. to start again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also something about how, like why people talk about like why we like horror in general. Right. It can make us feel kind of weirdly safe. Yeah. To sort of, have that distance to it and sort of be able to watch it and sometimes because it can make death look kind of silly and easier to handle in a weird way because it's like so over the top yeah and like i think christmas as a season is also so over the top oh my gosh yeah and can be hard to like um these film film scholars chris vanderkay and kathleen fernandez vanderkay Uh have actually written a lot about christmas horror well like genre horror and stuff Uh and really just sort of pointed out the simple fact that like horror loves irony we do love irony you know yeah and so, like, this is a time that's supposed to be about, like, charity and warmth. Yeah. But for a lot of people, it can be, like, cold and lonely and sad. Yeah. And so, like, horror can maybe allow us to process those darker feelings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't need to feel guilty about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, it can even be, like, kind of like a welcome respite from all of that holiday cheer. Yeah, right. To be like, no, I want to feel, like, scared or I want to feel sad or I want to feel whatever. I, I don't want to see a sorority girl get strangled to death. Yeah. yeah. Also, just sort of, like, what we talked about in our perch episode Mm -hmm. how sometimes horror is kind of like easy junk food yeah like there's a lot in christmas and like around the holidays that is pulling your attention all the which ways which i think is why there's a lot of movies around this time that are like the fluffy hallmark christmas movies or like things that are really formulaic and you know what's going to happen and you just sort of watch it and you can watch it with your family right and it's just sort of like easy entertainment yeah it's not particularly controversial you can watch it with those family members you maybe don't actually like that much. right yeah. <laughs> yeah and you know, like don't really have to talk too much other than about the movie yeah and that like gives you an easy thing to talk about yeah. um this other the author of uh something called a scary little christmas a history of yuletide horror film 1972 to 2022 okay. 2020 matthew dupee okay he talks about how um christmas creates this like quick emotional connection to the story Sure, because everybody has an emotional connection to Christmas. Yeah, and you already, positive or negative, you automatically yeah. have a reason to like care about what's going on because you're like, oh well, their holiday is getting ruined. Yeah, you know, right. like it's Christmas. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, he says holiday horror films, especially the better ones, maximize the social intimacy of the viewer and turn everything we love about the holiday on its head, creating that perfect backdrop for dread and terror. Yeah, 
And I think there's also something about the way that like things that we're really familiar with can then be subverted to become really terrifying and like the known becomes unknown. And I think when it like especially secular Westerners, right, Americans, US, UK, you know, it can kind of sometimes feel without a specific culture sometimes, but we have Christmas. Like, sure even do. if we don't celebrate Christmas, it is so in our culture. Right. We all know Christmas trees, Santa, get, candy canes. Like, we get, the kids get a couple weeks off of school. Yeah, yeah. And it, yeah, and for the longest time, it was called Christmas break. We've now switched to winter break. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> not everybody celebrates it. But it's like, these are so visible, like, well-known touchstones that we can all recognize just from living here. Yeah. That we have that familiar thing. And then we have that familiar thing shifted a little bit to become scary. Right. It kind of makes me think of like, like a summer camp, right? And like all those other ways yeah. that we frame like a slasher film or any other kind of yeah. horror genre film of like what emotional connection already exists for the mm-hmm. audience that we can exploit and make scary. Right? Yeah. And not everybody's gone to summer camp and that's fine. You know, right, but yeah. like the, yeah, those kinds of experiences that like are, yeah, are, even though they're different individually, they do kind of like universally connect us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think even though like kind of on the surface, it seems sort of like silly or something that there are so many Christmas horror movies. Cause you don't really think of Christmas as like a scary time. Right. Like, I think it actually, when you think about it and its history and all of these things and the psychology of it all, it's like, no, it actually makes perfect sense. Like, even more so than, like, Halloween horror, which honestly isn't capitalized on that much, I think, because it's already a spooky season. It's spooky season, yeah. You don't need that release in the way that you do during Christmas. Right. Yeah, because it's just the whole thing. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Christmas was, like, the most used holiday in horror valentine's day yeah i don't know that would be an interesting thing to look into for yeah. sure yeah yeah there's a lot of christmas horror movies I and i mean some are so bad but yeah but like they just keep coming they just keep coming yeah well now i'm, I'm hoping now. that we'll be getting a thanksgiving franchise <laughs> so fingers crossed fingers crossed because honestly thanksgiving i mean is a terrifying holiday it is and yeah. it should not yeah bend I know what you did last summer. Try to give us a 4th of July. That's true. A 4th of July movie. Um, <laughs> I feel like there's got to be some Valentine's Day ones. Just oh, yeah. That my makes bloody sense. Valentine yeah. is a big one. Um, there's a, some anthology horror. Oh, fuck. I can't remember exactly. But something about the holidays. And it's like literally it's Every, an anthology. And like there's a bunch of holidays and Valentine's Day is absolutely one of them. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. None of them hit like Christmas. No, they really, really don't. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> that's good for Halloween and Christmas. Uh, yeah, double. Yeah. 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 So Katie, you and I are like, usually we play a game. What game do we want to play? And we we're like, I don't know. Archetypes, maybe? <laughs> and then we started recording and we we're like, oh, well, here we are. Um, I think Archetypes is an interesting game for this movie because right. it, is a, it is a slasher. It's a slasher. It's a proto slasher. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, okay, so let's think about the character. We got Jess. Yeah. We've got Claire. Barb. We've got Barb. We've got Phil. We've and got Peter. Peter. We've got, I mean, there's Mrs. Mack. There's Claire's oh. dad. There's the cop. There's Lieutenant the cop. Fuller. Maybe let's keep it to those. I like those five. The the four sorority girls that and we know. Peter. And Peter. Yeah, so Phil, 
Jess, Claire, Barb, Peter. Yes. Okay. So, uh, again, it's very interesting to me because, you know, Claire is teased as being a, you know, quote unquote, professional virgin and dies first. Right. Which is so... And obviously has these depths that are a little more sexual. Yeah, right. She's got that free love poster on her on her bedroom wall. Right. Um, and meanwhile, Barb has that very stereotypical kind of like whore right yeah she's smoking she's drinking but she never talks about boys or seems no, to have any connection she makes have a boyfriend? that fellatio joke to the cops and that's it just and she like just because she's college educated know what fellatio is right yeah and then she like <laughs> you know talking back at the moaner but yeah she doesn't really actually seem that calling him a fucking pig but it's not yeah she yeah. doesn't seem to have a lot of like personal sexuality going on which no, is interesting really. yeah so hmm. so then does that make claire the whore i don't Let's start with easier ones. Let's start with an easier one. Who do we think is the fool? Because I feel like it either has to be Mrs. Mack or Barb because they're the ones who are really imbibing. That's true. So if Mrs. Mack is not in our five, right. then Barb as a fool makes sense, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Because she and she is kind of making light of the situation. Right. And she, yeah, she has a lot of comedic lines. And then she does have or that lines we're supposed to think are comedic. Apparent, yeah. Maybe in 1974, they were hilarious. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Ha ha, townie. <laughs> um... Does anyone even still use that term I anymore? Don't know. <laughs> well, because like, because technically, because we live in Eugene. Oh, we're townies. We're townies. This is a college. School. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. That's what's really funny. I don't know. I've never identified as a townie before. No, but, but townies never do. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, town. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't mind. I can be a townie. I don't yeah. care. Um. So yeah, Barb is our fool. Barb's a fool. Yeah, and then and it, but she does. Yeah, also kind of have that breakthrough of just like uh, I think I really fucked up here. You know. Yeah. Like, does she say anything that's like you know the way that fools sometimes oh, often do have speak that the prophetic truth? Sort yeah. Of speaking does she the truth. ever do or say anything that's like mm, the closest thing I can think of? I mean, maybe when she talks about how she feels like it's her fault. Yeah. That she chased Claire off, so yeah. if she's dead, it's like her fault. But like, that's not true no it's not true <laughs> but it is like a prophetic in the sense that she's like seems the most sure that claire is dead that claire's that not okay yeah um also i think maybe during when she has her asthma attack when she goes to bed yeah and she's like i had a dream there was a man in my room oh yeah because yeah, a man was in your room yeah. Barb, and, she, and then she makes some joke about like oh i could be so lucky to have a strange man in my room oh, like barb barb don't say that we need to have some talks barb yeah yeah classic full behavior. i understand she's trying to be sexually liberated but man, she's got a lot to learn about sex. Yeah. Sex. <laughs> um, so, okay. Barb's oh, yeah. our fool. Love that. Um, um, does Peter athlete Peter. Which is, I don't know. I don't tend to think of I pianist. I almost wonder if he's athlete. our scholar because, again, we don't oh, know what anyone else is studying. That's a good point. And that's like a big point part of his character is that he is a college guy. Right. And he's like at the conservatory. Yeah. And I it almost like... To me, it seems like it maybe Peter's a bit older because, like, yeah. Jess seems like an undergrad, like, getting a bachelor's degree, maybe. Alternatively, yeah. Speaking of scholars, yeah. Jess, yeah. Because I feel like another thing scholars do is they try to think of things rationally and true. they don't tend to be like particularly emotional characters. That's true. Sometimes to their detriment. Yeah. I feel like maybe Jess has those vibes. And we, even though we don't know what her plans are, she's sticking to them. She's sticking to them. She's like, she I'm has going plans. to school. Yeah. I am here for school. She's like got Peter, dreams. Whereas yeah. Peter's like ready to throw away his, you know, his school plans. Yeah. After. Oh, that's right. Because he does. He does make a mention of I'm sick of like he's been living in one room for eight years. Yeah. He says. And it's just like, OK, so you're like pursuing 
an advanced degree yeah. in this conservatory, right? Yeah, you are like a professional pianist sort of yeah. track. Wanted to be a... Con- he could still be a concert pianist anyway. Yeah. Um, Fuck that guy. I like that Jess is the scholar, right? Yeah. And then I like that because like, then the scholar gets to be our final girl. Which is rare. Which is rare, right? Because like she's not a virgin. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. It's like... But none of or maybe none of them really. It's are. hard to know. Yeah, yeah. Hard to say. Not really spelled out for us. But yeah, yeah. I think she works as a scholar just okay. for how like she thinks about things logically. And she's right. Like, These are the decisions I made based on thinking about it and, and coming to conclusions. And also, when other people start to get riled up, she does keep her cool. Yeah, yeah. Which yeah. is important. So then, okay. So then, who's left? So we still need an athlete for. Maybe Peter. And a virgin and a whore. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay, so, and then who's left? We got Peter. Claire and Claire Phyllis. Claire and Phyllis. It's so hard with Phyllis, because we know literally we really nothing know about her. About her. Um, Could Peter be the whore? <laughs> we know he's sexually active. This is true. I, I do feel What's like... What's your criteria for a whore, though? I mean, it does feel like it has to be somebody that the movie, to an extent, and definitely the slasher killer wants to punish right and that's yeah, that's claire first that is claire first yeah i almost wonder if she kind of is is our whore yeah. even if she gets i called mean i a feel virgin. like the only reason not to put her in that spot is because she gets called a virgin but like she dies first usually yeah. that's the that's the yeah. sign which again is why i i feel like uh, yeah, I think what you've brought up is really true. That Barb as a character actually seems really sexually liberated, but we don't actually know much about her yeah. sex life. Yeah. So, like, to me, again, as I like, mentioned Barb before. Barb is very, like, surface. Yeah. She talks tough. Yeah. And sexy. But... She talks the talk, but maybe doesn't walk the walk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, like, in another version of this film... Barb would probably be one of the first to die. Yeah. Like she might be the one who like right. incurs the wrath of the psycho killer. Yeah. Um, but it's not. It's Claire. And so, hmm. Yeah. So okay. I think she might be our whore. I think Claire's the whore. Yeah. And then, okay. So then we just have our athlete and a vir- our virgin. Yeah. Maybe Phyllis is the virgin. I mean, she doesn't seem to have any sort of connection with anybody except for Jess. <laughs> yeah, right. I think she might be the lesbian. Um, <laughs> could we like make a... Which, you know, of course, a slasher killer would not consider true sex. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, that's a good. That's a really good point, right? Um, yeah. So maybe... Phil- yeah, and she's like... She's pretty meek, pretty quiet. Yeah. She's like, got her glasses. A little bit perk. more of a supportive character, I yeah. think. Yeah, maybe she's the virgin then. Yeah. But then that leaves Peter and she one of the to be the athlete. Except for Peter and Jess, Phil's the last to die. Yeah, she does stick around. And I think she does get kind of cheated in her death. Though. She does. We don't even see it. Yeah, we don't even see it. She's like, we'll oh, and, and Phyllis is dead too. And yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm like, but, but, but Jess loved her. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I loved her. I loved Phyllis. Yeah. Um... And I think Peter is the athlete just because the athletes do tend to be the violent, angry ones. Yes, how much he and he acts. Yeah, he broke into her basement. God That's damn it! That's true. And you know, athletes are always the first ones to go into the basement. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that makes sense for me. Yeah, he's kind of the athlete. Yeah, he's definitely like, even though he's a musician, right? We do see him like use his, his I mean, like physicality. Dis- he destroys his piano. He does destroy in a very that symbolic piano. Move. Yeah. <laughs> He breaks the window. He, he breaks the Christmas ornaments. He does like use his physicality to like intimidate Jess. Yeah. And then she fucking murders him. Yeah. 
that's awesome. Love that for her. Um, okay, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. So this has been Deep Thought Shallow Plots. Yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, we have an Instagram yeah. at Deep Thought Shallow Plots. Next time we're gonna watch Jeepers Creepers. Yeah, we are. Two thousand and one or I don't know. Two thousand. Literally early. the first horror movie I ever saw. Couldn't get through it. Have you ever seen it all the way through? Well, I finished it the next morning. Oh, okay. In <laughs> the day, There was, in there the was like literally 10 minutes left and I couldn't do it. In the daylight. You're <laughs> yeah. like, I'm watching this in the daytime. That's yeah. fair. As always, thanks to Sound Guy Matt. And until next time, we'll get a man on it. <laughs>